Hello and welcome back to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd. Today we're going to be looking back at week two of the Olympic Games, some of the highlights, lowlights, and various bits in between. And joining me once more is longtime Japan Times contributor Patrick St. Michel. Thank you so much for joining me, Patrick. Thank you for allowing me to come on once again. Oscar, I'm curious, how have you been? You've been getting out to a lot of these events over the past week, and if I'm not mistaken, a lot of them are under the blazing sun. How's that going for you? So it's going great,、uh, but if you're looking at me and going, why does your face look like it's slightly melted? I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> I'm a very polite boy. Yeah, well, it's because I spent all of yesterday under the blazing summer sun watching the skateboarding. And I think that's where I want to kick off this episode because. Something we didn't, we touched on briefly last week, but didn't really get into was the heat. It's hot out there, and this isn't a surprise to anyone. Before the pandemic swooped in and disrupted everything about the Olympics, the big concern held by a lot of people in Japan and also abroad was. Japanese summers seem brutal. Should you do sports in them? Probably not. <laughs> and I imagine, Oscar, you're. You are literally right in it. I'm just experiencing this from the TV in a nice air conditioned room. But we are seeing what everyone was kind of anticipating in terms of this, these high temperatures and tough environments for athletes to compete in. Today, Thursday morning, as we're recording, is supposed to be the hottest, sunniest day of the Olympics so far. I think the midday temperature is going to get up to about 36 degrees Celsius. And that's not. Factoring in the humidity, which makes it feel more like 42, 43 degrees Celsius. And it's definitely affecting the athletes. We saw that Spanish tennis player Paula Badosa suffered heat stroke during her quarterfinal match and had to be taken off the court in the wheelchair. And I think it was last Wednesday's、uh, quarterfinal match, number two seed Daniel Medvedev visibly struggled with the temperature and actually at one point turned to the umpire and said, Are you going to be responsible if I die? We've also seen 45 degree sand temperatures recorded at the beach volleyball.、Mm-hmm. And when I went to the canoe slalom last week as well, the athletes were saying that the water there, which was being circulated round and round and round under the summer sun, was hotter than a bath. Whew, I mean, yeah, that does really speak to it that this is impacting a lot of things. One of the ironies of all of this is about to unfold. Away from Tokyo, actually. If we sort of turn the clocks back to 2018, 2019, the event that was under the most scrutiny because of this heat concern was the marathon. Right. Eventually, what they decided was let's just take it out of Tokyo and let's go to Sapporo、mm. up north on Hokkaido, thinking it's cooler there. It's not as humid in the summers. Oscar, do you have any like,、uh, early weather reports of how <laughs> things are shaping up north? So, the marathon, the first of the marathons, is due to be held on Saturday. And Saturday in Sapporo is set to be 34 degrees, which I think is, you know, Sapporo for the last week or two has been recording record highs for summer temperatures there. This is the unfortunate twist is that Sapporo is experiencing a really 
harsh summer this year. So hot that actually, uh, for the first day of the marathon at least, it will be cooler in Tokyo. It's supposed to be 29 degrees and raining in Tokyo on Saturday uh, compared to Sapporo's sunny, sunny 34 degrees. So yeah, as you said, it's one of the horrible ironies of them trying to move the marathon north to keep the athletes cool is that it does actually look like the very problem that they were trying to anticipate and solve by moving it so far north is going to rear its ugly head again and and i feel sorry for the uh the women's marathon runners who'll be running on saturday in extreme heat it remains funny that for all of the links to 1964 the 1964 tokyo games nobody was like oh what if we kind of like mirror that and just do it in the fall Mm. when it's cooler this is the olympics where you could have gotten away with that but i'm sure the tv deals and NBC in America in particular were probably aghast at that idea. Well, that's another irony because I think the reason why it was set to be held in the middle of the hottest part of Tokyo summer was because of the TV deals, but actually because of the time difference and I think the general lack of enthusiasm around the Olympics this year, we've actually seen record low viewership numbers on tv in across i think most of america and europe as well so it might have been you know just a nice idea next time to uh, factor in the athlete's ability to compete properly over the nbc viewership (laughs) schedule you know i'm actually glad there's no spectators this time around and i mean the main reason for that is because of the covid pandemic but a lot of these stadiums have been built outdoors with no protection from the sun whatsoever no kind of shades and i do think if there'd been tens of thousands of people shoved into these stands we would have seen a lot of heat stroke um, throughout this i think 30 people involved with the organization of the olympics have suffered heat related illnesses so far through the games they've all had mild symptoms which is great but i can't imagine what it would have been like with tens of thousands of spectators in the audience May maybe a, a a positive way of looking at everything that's unfolded. Speaking of positives, the actual athletics we've witnessed in week two has has kind of continued on the trend we saw in week one, where it's been pretty exciting. Whether you're looking at just the Japanese teams. Or just overall, I was thinking about this before we started recording, is like you mentioned the low ratings, the sort of general like glum approach to the Olympics a lot of people abroad have. But like, I kind of feel this has been a good Olympics on a purely sports level. Yeah, I think so too. It's been really fun to watch and there's been a lot of great Olympic sporting moments. Let's go and jump just into Japan's performance because when we recorded this time last week, uh, Japan was on 13 golds, almost at its record tally of 16 golds, which I think they got in Athens and Tokyo. Yeah, after we recorded, I think they tied it that night, the Thursday. Mm. I think there was one more rush in the judo. Mm. Things haven't been as one after another as they were in the first week, where it felt like every three hours there was a new gold medal going to a Japanese (laughs) participant. But there have been a fair share of golds at this point. They're at 21, I think, at time of recording. And there have been some pretty, pretty excellent moments in this second week. Uh, You actually were at one of them yesterday, yeah? 
I was, which was the uh, third gold medal to be won by a Japanese athlete in the debut Olympic skateboarding events. Yesterday we had the skateboarding park, which was out in a big purpose-built concrete skating bowl in Ariake near Odaiba. And that was won by 19-year-old Sakura Yosozumi. In second place was 12-year-old Kokona Hiraki. And then in third place was 13-year-old Sky Brown, who is representing Great Britain, but is half Japanese and was born in Miyazaki, I believe. Mm -hmm. And then in fourth place was another young 15-year-old Japanese uh, skateboarder. So yeah, Japan is sweeping up the medals in the skateboarding. You mentioned the skateboarder who finished fourth, uh, Misugu Okamoto. That also sort of resulted in one of those moments I think the IOC could only like dream of, where on her final run, she sort of wiped out, which cost her the bronze medal that allowed Sky Brown to move into third place and get that. But all the other competitors kind of go towards her, they console her, they hug her, and then they lift her up. And it's one of those very sweet moments, one of those, like, the power of sports. <laughs> like, we talk about all the bad Olympic stuff. This is the stuff that's like, oh, okay, yeah, this is why we keep coming back. Mm -mm -mm. And what's amazing about the skateboarding is just the age of these medalists, the fact that they're all teenagers. Oh, yeah, crazy. And, you know, two of the three medalists were... 12 and 13 years old and this follows on from you know a gold medal won by a 13 year old japanese girl and a silver medal won by a 13 year old brazilian girl last week in the skateboarding it's uh, it's fantastic to see and they're you know they're really good they're really really good just watching the yep. event live you know they're they're absolute pros on the ball it's it's incredible to watch yeah it's skateboarding has been one of the highlights we talked a lot about it last week too but it's just been a blast to watch even on tv so japan is now on 21 gold medals at the time of recording it's behind china who are in first place with 32 gold medals and the u.s who are on 25 and so i think some of the other notable moments we've seen uh in the last week occurred in gymnastics where daiki hashimoto won the all-round gold medal and uh, the gold medal for the horizontal bar as well and then did you see the boxing oh you bet i saw the boxing uh the women's featherweight final saw uh sena Irie win gold and this it was great seeing her win it she had a great reaction she's really like pumped up <laughs> joyful it was great However, there's history here that needs to be shared. Uh, Sena Irie becomes the first gold medalist from Totori Prefecture ever, Oscar. <laughs> Totori, your moment has arrived. Totori, the new Olympic champion, the smallest, most glossed over prefecture in all of Japan. You've arrived. You did it. You got your gold. They've got something more to celebrate than sand dunes and camels now. Sand dunes and camels. I think that means there is only one prefecture left in Japan uh, where a gold medal hasn't been won by one of its athletes. And I believe that is Okinawa. It's the oh, really? 47th huh. and remaining prefecture without a gold medal winning athlete. Huh, that's surprising. Yeah, let's uh, not dwell on that too much because now that I say it, it seems too surprising. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, we'll double check. If you hear this, we did our fact checking. So, <laughs> so yeah, that one was really cool. Um, and, and maybe one of the, the skateboarding, I think, was probably the highlight so far. Uh, 
for me in terms of gold medals. But yeah, the boxing was really cool to see and just a mm-hmm. really great reaction. Uh, if you're in Japan, go check out that NHK YouTube upload of it. It's really good. We'll be back after this short break. I think one of the other really notable moments of this week, to go straight into it, Super Sunday, when the Italian high jumper Gianmarco Tamberi faced off against the Qatari high jumper Mutaz Bashim. They both had a perfect string of jumps and ended up both failing to make the final height, which I believe was 239 centimetres. And rather than going into a jump off, they decided to share the gold, meaning they both won gold medals in the high jumping. And I think this was probably one of the real highlights of this Olympics. Oscar, do you think the athletes this year are like closer to each other than previously? Are we just seeing it more? Like they seem more buddy-buddy, yeah. (laughs) It does seem that way. Uh, And I don't know whether that's a bias I have from actually just watching these Olympics much more closely than previous Olympics I've watched. But whether it's because of the, you know, training throughout COVID-19 experience, the shared joy of actually just even being able to make it to Tokyo or maybe all being kind of confined and locked up together in the athletes village does feel like there's been a lot of really nice moments between athletes whether that's you know the skateboarders picking up misugu okamoto after she'd had her crash or whether it was tamberi and bashim sharing their gold medals i feel like there's been just a lot of shared joy and shared enthusiasm not only between teammates but also between rival countries This actually ties to one of the more interesting developments that we're seeing at Tokyo 2020, which is the way athletes have been sort of allowed to use social media. Mm. For example, if we go back to Rio in 2016, the IOC had much stricter rules against athletes posting to sites like Twitter or YouTube. You had to kind of like get the content approved before it went up. So as a result, you don't get a lot of on-the-ground perspective from the athletes themselves. For Tokyo, the IOC loosened up, realized that a lot of people kind of experience the Olympics and most pop culture and athletics through social media. Mm. And they're just like, post away. What we've seen is athletes from all over the world have taken to these sites to give their perspective on what it's like to be in the Olympic Village, what it's like to take part in what is a very strange uh, games. And especially, I think, on TikTok, we talk about a lot how like ratings are down in America, but I do think a lot of younger people maybe are just experiencing it through small screen stuff like TikTok. Yeah, I do wonder whether the total engagement with the Olympics would actually kind of equal out if you brought in all the new social media stuff that's been allowed this year. You know, I think the viral moments we've seen, for example, a lot of, a lot of them have revolved around and around the, the story of the anti-sex beds the cardboard beds which were introduced at the athletes village uh, mainly for sustainability and cost cutting reasons 
but it quickly turned into a story where someone said that they were meant to prevent athletes from having sex with each other because they would collapse if too much weight was put on them. But there was a great clip from, um, I think early on it was an Irish gymnast who was just jumping up and down showing that the beds wouldn't collapse. And then later on we had the Israeli athletes delegation taking to TikTok to uh, see just how many athletes it would take to make one of these beds collapse. They started at one, they got to two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and then I think it finally collapsed on number nine. Should be noted, a lot of people not happy they destroyed that bed, but hey, it's science. As kind of (laughs) silly as that could maybe get, it does show how a lot of people want to kind of experience all of this directly through the athletes. It's easier than ever for a celebrity or an athlete to give you their look. They don't need a middle person anymore. And we're seeing that. Mm. But I think we've also seen the flip side of this. It also means that fans are able to connect more easily with the athletes and for good and for bad. While we've seen a lot of people enjoy content from the Athletes Village, we've also seen a number of moments where fans have taken to Twitter to express their immense displeasure at judging decisions at other athletes performances etc etc i think one of the biggest examples of this was when daiki hashimoto won his gold medal in the men's all-round competition last week and chinese netizens took to twitter and other social media platforms in their tens and hundreds of thousands and directed a lot of abusive messages at the at both Hashimoto and the uh, judges who had awarded him the gold medal. And it ended up with the International Gymnastics Federation taking the very unusual step of actually explaining uh, the whole point scoring method on Twitter to show that they had judged him fairly and that Hashimoto deserved his gold. I think especially here we're talking about Twitter as a sort of staging ground for this kind of whether you want to look at it as criticism or trolling a week prior to this after uh, the Japanese team sort of upset the Chinese team in the mixed uh, table tennis final for the gold medal. Something very similar happened in that there was a lot of Chinese netizens instantly rushing in and criticizing accusing them of cheating it's like they blew on the ball weird or something um to the point where like one of the winners of that gold medal from japan acknowledged it it's a very real thing and Mm. especially when you bring in events where there are judges you're really setting it up to be tough i think there's another prominent example of that yeah yeah, totally. And before you know, anyone gets the impression that it's only Chinese fans who are reacting badly to certain results. Um, yeah, it's not just, yeah. In the surfing, there was, you know, big controversy over the moment Japanese surfer Kanoa Igarashi beat out Brazilian surfer, and I think the favorite for the competition, Gabriel Medina, in, I think it was the semifinals. And they pulled very similar tricks and both had been awarded slightly different scores. And Brazilian surfing fans took to Twitter as well and, you know, were accusing the judges of home bias, etc., etc. I think they all ended up kind of forgetting about it after another Brazilian surfer ended up beating Igarashi in the final to take the gold medal there to step outside of Japanese athletes being involved with it. We've already touched on the Simone Biles incident or hot take dumb from last week after she sort of stepped away from competition to deal with her mental health. That was a good example of people turning on their 
own country's athletes. Every country practically has their own example of this tension. There's a big one in South Korea involving gold medal archer An San. She won three gold medals at Tokyo, I believe. She's a great competitor, but a sort of anti-feminism crowd in South Korea, which is a sort of big societal divide right now. They're totally against her because they think her haircut which is short, is like coded feminism. They don't like her and think she shouldn't be representing the country. So if you dig into all of this, you're going to find things and it's all playing out on social media. We spent a lot of time talking about the internet, Oscar, but let's, let's remember IRL also has plenty of politics seeping into it. And the Tokyo Games have seen a lot of both political protest and just real-world happenings cross over into the games themselves. Mm. This was a big talking point coming into the games where, um, you know, in the US and the UK and Europe, we've seen a lot of athletes uh, take the knee before games in support of the BLM movement. And... You know, a lot of people were wondering how this would play out in the Olympics to the point where last month before the Games were due to start, the IOC relaxed Rule 50 that prevented athletes from protesting at all. Athletes are allowed now to make gestures on the field, but they have to do so without disrupting any you know part of the match or the game and with respect for fellow competitors. So, for example, before Team GB played in the Rugby Sevens, they all took the knee before the game. However, we did have the first example of the IOC kind of hammering down on an athlete uh, on Sunday after US shot putter Raven Saunders raised her arms into an X above her head while she was receiving her silver medal in the event. Saunders said afterwards that the gesture was intended as a sign of support for the downtrodden. They launched, they being the IOC, launched an inquiry into this and to whether it broke the rules they set out. Athletes aren't meant to make any kind of political gestures while on the podium, but the probe was actually suspended after Saunders later shared on social media that her mother had died in the wake of her receiving that silver medal, which is kind of a very sad end to that story. Um, I don't know what action will be taken, if any, against her, but certainly that did raise some eyebrows at the time. Looking beyond just the actual events, what we see on the field of play, politics also kind of cross over to outside of the competition as well. And that was captured best by a much focused on story involving a Belarusian sprinter. Right. This is Kristina Simonovskaya, who refused to board a flight from Tokyo on Sunday evening after being taken to Haneda Airport, apparently against her wishes by her team, after she'd complained about the Belarusian coaching staff at the Olympic Games. She was trying to, you know, she was seeking protection at Haneda Airport late on Sunday. And it sort of, the media kind of really followed this story closely, both domestic media here in Japan and international media. In the end, she was granted a humanitarian visa to Poland. She's now gone there seeking asylum. And it was a reminder that, yeah, just because the Olympics are happening and it feels like an escape, um, whether that's from the pandemic or just the quote unquote real world, um, it really isn't. 
As with last week's episode, I think we should wrap up by talking about the fact that all of this is being done with the ghastly spectre of COVID-19 in the background and with the Delta variant spreading across all of Japan. And I think last week we were both um, you know, talking in a bit of shock that the daily case count had then gone above 3,000 cases in Tokyo for the first time. But now we're seeing reports of 5,000 daily cases in Tokyo and record cases nationwide on top of that. And the state of emergency that had previously only applied to Tokyo has now been expanded to Osaka, Kanagawa, Saitama and Chiba as well. If you want a positive, a silver lining, vaccinations are going up. So the percent is crawling up. There are still, I think, a lot of like supply chain issues, shortages. I know people who like had appointments set up who have just like had them canceled recently. Mm. You don't want to see that. But if you want to try to, you know, keep an upbeat approach to this and don't want to get sort of bummed out by numbers that are not great, the vaccination numbers are at least encouraging at this point. We've now crossed the 30% mark for the percentage of the population that has received two vaccines and 41% have now received at least one dose of a vaccine. There we go. You know, when we were talking about this last week, Patrick, you said, uh, ask again in two weeks time whether you think this whole games is worth it. And I think, you know, that is a question we'll, we'll be asking once the games do wrap up. But talking about wrapping up, you know, we do have the closing ceremony planned for only a few days away on Sunday. I can't believe, you know, the two-week period of the Olympics is coming to a close so, so quickly. (laughs) We spent, what, nearly a decade kind of like preparing for this and then it's like, whoo, right by. (laughs) Um, But when we first, you know, made these episodes about the Olympics and the kind of long road to the Olympics, I think one of the focal points of the Tokyo 2020 Olympics was that handover ceremony in Rio 2016, the moment that Tokyo really kind of stamped their mark on these Olympics with that show at the Rio uh, closing ceremony. So, you know, you were all clued in on, on the opening ceremony. Do we know what we can expect at all at this point for the closing ceremony on Sunday? I would say the thing to keep an eye on is what is Paris going to do? They're holding the next Summer Olympics, 2024. And if we're going to look at 2016 Rio closing ceremony, as you mentioned, as a sort of important template, what we now know, especially after the original opening ceremony plans were leaked by weekly tabloid uh, Shukan Bunshun, is that the program we saw in 2016 really was kind of a blueprint for what was planned for 2020. Assuming that by 2024, uh, life is quote-unquote normal, (laughs) Paris could kind of have the chance to do an actual opening ceremony that is more extravagant, more fun, and we might see the seeds of it Sunday. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Deep Dive. My guest was Patrick St. Michel. It's always a pleasure having him on to talk. In the show notes, you'll find links to just a handful of the great articles that my colleagues have produced throughout these games, including Dan Olowitz's exclusive with the CEO of Airweave, the company that designed the so-called anti-sex beds at the Athletes Village. You can also follow along with the final few days of Olympic coverage at japantimes.co.jp. 
As I mentioned last week, we also have a subscriber campaign on at the moment. It's currently 30% off if you subscribe to the Japan Times this summer. More details on our website. I'd like to finish off by saying cheers to everyone who's reached out to me to wish me and my arms a speedy recovery after my accident earlier this year. It's a real pleasure to hear from you all, so thank you so much for your very kind wishes. Until next time, as always, Potskarisama. Thank you.